You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I swear no puppy dogs were injured in the recording of this episode. Spend all your time waiting That second chance For the break that would make it okay So in some reason to feel Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Tutor Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Engel, and for over three years, I've been covering the Green Lantern comics that started with cover date June 1990 and ended with cover date November 2004, all the while shining a spotlight on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my favorite comic book characters of all time. And this episode, we're continuing our jury through the Jedwick run by looking at the second half of the hate crime story in Green Lantern number 155. Last episode, we saw the links Kyle would go through to get justice for the brutal beating of his young friend and assistant Terry Berg, and now we see that he might be trying to go a bit too far, perhaps even trying to travel in time to right this wrong. Will this possession take him down a dark path that led to Hal Jordan's fate? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Plus, we're finishing up the last book in the prestige format of Elseworlds tale, Green Lantern Evil's Might, where a late 19th century Alan Scott and Kyle Rayner duke it out over the Big Apple, while Irish writers take down the Boss Tweed gang below. So you get a history lesson and a comic book all in one. Hooray. When you said that we weren't talking about this, you didn't mention that that's one of my favorite eras in history to study. Oh, the the late 1800s? I love Boss Tweed. He's amazing. He was a brute. He was awful. He's like, the, he, he pretty much was an American villain written in history. Oh, man. I'm disappointed in you now, Sean. I don't know whether you're bullshitting me or not. I'm not bullshitting you. I love... You don't understand. I was this close to being a history major. Oh, dear my, God. And that was, like, one of my favorite eras in history to study. Oops. Damn it, Sean. <laughs> I don't want to be on your show anymore. Well, this is going to be short, then. Would you like Hi. Would you like to talk about this? Would you like to talk about the book? I can give you... I can, I can quick email you the... Uh... Nah, it's okay. I, I don't really have a lot of time to read it. Oops. Sorry. It's okay. Well, no, I was almost a history. Major. I had no idea. Well, I had no idea that Hope Molinax, my guest here, was so into that era of uh, of New York history. That's awesome, ladies and gentlemen. It's it's my pleasure to unfortunately <laughs> welcome Hope onto the show and not cover the thing that she was probably more interested out in, in this book. Hey, Hope. <laughs> Hi. How so- how could have I known? Oh, Lord. I feel like such oh, a Oh, no. Buffoon. No, no. It's totally okay. You didn't know. Um, hi, I'm Hope Molinax. I run a show on Two True Freaks also called Hope of All Trades. And I'm actually a little nervous to be here today. <laughs> well, you know, I think it would have made it a lot less nervous. I would have known that you had such an interest in the, the late 1800s New York City politics. But unfortunately, I just assumed that this would be out of your wheelhouse. Uh. <laughs> Green Lantern is always out of my wheelhouse. Um, to give some background, I'm definitely a Marvel girl. But uh, I wanted... Uh, Sean asked... I was about to call you Kyle. Sean asked me um, to cover this section um, because of the material is something I am an advocate for. I, 
Wait, that came out wrong. I'm not an advocate for hate crimes. No. I'm an advocate for opposites of hate crimes, which is uh, equal rights and everything. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and I'm really happy to have you on for to talk about this. And if I would have known, I would have had you to talk <laughs> about the other book as well. All I would say is, Boss Tweed is like. If he was in the actual, like, Justice League universe, he would make an awesome villain. He'd be, like, the Batman of villains because he was so smart and such a money man. And, oh, my God, he was he was just an infamously terrible man. Hmm. Well... He was awesome. To, to, then, then maybe these comics... I may have to send you uh, some some copies of these comics so you can at least read them because they're an interesting little tale, but they don't really deal with Boss Tweed all that much. It's more centered around the Green Lanterns, centered in the era of Boss Tweed. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see about sending you copies of the books so that you can at least check them out. Oh, thank you. No problem. Well, we're going to take a quick little break here. I'm going to plug in some promos, and then after that, we're going to get back here to our coverage of Green Lantern number 155. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it, from 1938 to the present day. From the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com Hey Gene, we should do a podcast. Sounds like a great idea, Jeff. But what will we talk about? How about a superhero that we both love? Perfect. Some like Thor or Captain America? Uh, both great choices, but um, I think they're being covered by somebody else already. Wait, I've got it. What about the protector of the universe? Like Voltron? No, no, no. The guy with the jewelry that lets him create whatever he wants. Ah, Green Lantern, nice. Close. No, this guy has cosmic awareness. Captain Marvel? Almost. I mean... Quasar! Ah, Quasar. Who doesn't love a good Quasar? Tune in to the Quantum Cast, covering all things Quasar. Yes, that's right. You can find us at quantumbands.blogspot.com. And on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Yeah, that that didn't sound scripted at all, did it? All right, and we're back. And unfortunately, we're not going to be covering Green Lantern is Evil's Might, which would probably be the more interesting book that Hope would like to cover. We're going to be covering Green Lantern 155. This one was cover dated December 2002 and released on October 9th of 2002 with a cover price of 225 US and 375 Canada. The title was Hate Crime Part 2, and the writer was Judd Winnick. Penciler was Dale Eaglesham. The anchor was Rodney Ramos. The letter was Kurt Hathaway. Colorist was Moose Bowman. Assistant editor was Morgan Dontanaville. The editor was Bob Shrek. And the cover was by Jim Lee, Scott Williams, and Alex Sinclair. And the synopsis goes thusly. As the media reports on the fallout of the brutal beating of young Terry Berg, 
His enraged father Mark remains adamant about letting Terry's boyfriend into the hospital room to see him. Mark screams that if it weren't for people like him, as well as enablers like Jenny Lynn Hayden, his son wouldn't be in the situation he is now. But his bluster soon turns to blubbering as he collapses into his wife's arm, and Jenny takes this opportunity to escort David to see Terry with his mother's permission. As David spends some time alone with the one he loves, Jon Stewart enters the ICU bearing gifts of coffee for Kyle and Jenny. Saying that she thought no visitors were allowed up here, Jenny asks why Kyle didn't tell her about the visitation. Kyle blows it off, saying that he forgot to tell her, but he thought that John and Jenny could hang out while he takes care of business. As Kyle departs, Jenny tells John that Kyle has been pretty aloof the past few days, and John tells Jenny to give the grieving hero some time. Up on the Moonbase Watchtower, Green Lantern is prodding the Flash to use the Cosmic Treadmill to do a little time traveling and make the whole beating of Terry thing go away. Of course, Wally says no deal, for a boatload of reasons. But Kyle asks what does it matter if they save this one boy's life, this innocent boy who is probably going to die. Entering the meeting room, Batman says that they all want one day back, but they can never take it. They can't pick up and choose who they dart back through time to go help, they just go forward and stop it the next time. Geo rebukes the Bat, saying that he doesn't remember what it's like to be a person, much less a hero, and Batman wonders what kind of hero would break into Riker's Island and fracture an inmate's wrist. Cal said that Batman would do that a hundred times a day before the rest of the heroes would even have breakfast, and Batman counters, maybe. But that's me, isn't it? Frustrated, Kyle walks off, leaving Flash and Batman to ponder what would have happened if Kyle would have tried to punch the Dark Knight. Hint, he's the goddamn Batman. <laughs> that was my favorite part. That was about, probably about the only part in the book I just, like, busted up laughing. <laughs> exactly. You, you can't punch me, I'm Batman. I'm Batman. Batman. Cut to the asteroid belt between Earth and Mars, where GLO is letting off some steam by bashing some cosmic boulders. The disturbance in the forest brings forth the Spectre, who asks what the 411 on Kyle is for knocking up some space rocks. Kyle says that if he didn't give up his ion powers, he could have prevented all of this by simply moving through the time stream and walking Terry home. But he gave it up before he could help. The Spectre says that he used the power to feed millions, avert disasters, aid friends, and even find his missing father. None of these things were selfish acts. Still troubled, Kyle acknowledges that he accomplished these major things, but what about the smallest good? The littlest battles. The Spectre responds, Littlest battles? What? You mean life? Telling him that he cannot right every wrong, the Spectre teleports GL back to the hospital, saying that good news is waiting for him. And as Kyle enters the ICU, he's greeted by an ebullient Jenny who tells him that Terry is out of his coma and looks like he might recover. Asking for Kyle, Terry has a conversation via notepad with Kyle, ending with him asking, What happened to him? Later that night, Kyle and Jenny are relaxing on the apartment rooftop, discussing Terry's outlook. Kyle shows Jenny a sketchbook of Terry's that he found in the apartment, and Jenny sees the sketch depicting Kyle side by side as Green Lantern. Following up that revelation, Kyle says that he can't do this anymore, simply protecting Earth. He wants to get away and he wants Jenny to come with him. However, he doesn't want to leave the planet without an emerald protector, so he leaves a farewell note and the leftover power ring in the capable hands of Jon Stewart.
Okay, that is Green Lantern number 155. Now, I know you don't have all that much history with Green Lantern, but what are your general thoughts on this book, Hope? Um, it's definitely the fallout book of the previous one, because I, I did read the previous one. Um, that one was much harder to read. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. as, as someone just coming in and just reading straight uh, 154 and 155, uh, the first one was definitely the, the harder of the two to read for me. Um, now that being said on this one, um, I feel like this was more of Kyle's kind of morality superhero fight within himself. Um, I, let me gather my thoughts for a second. It's still morning here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I, I, I liked this one for Kyle because I think that is the base superhero struggle that they go through all the time. I mean, do you go, and, I, and I, I like the plethora of characters that they also had in this book as well, because there is a difference between like Bruce Wayne and Kyle. Um, they're very two different, they're two very different heroes, and Bruce Wayne is more the vigilante justice, so he, he wouldn't have a problem breaking into Riker Island and beating up a kid to get information out of him. Um, I, th- I think it's something that they all struggle with. Like, and like, while I might not be a Superman fan, I, I know Superman has dealt with that before as well, and I, and they all have. Um, I gotta say though, uh, I have a question, uh, about this book. Go ahead. Very first, uh, is- uh page, it has President Luther. Is Lex Luther president in this era? Yes, uh. Okay, in, just making sure. <laughs> in, I think around the early 2000s, probably right around the, the George Bush presidency in the Superman books, and I think it might have been in Superman Batman. Superman, or Lex Luthor ran for president, and I think it went throughout all the Superman books. And I, I like the fact that Luthor is president because a lot of times when they give sort of analogs to uh, current day presidents. It dates the book. I know there has been times where Richard Nixon has been president in the books or Ronald Reagan has been president in the books. This gives it a sort of timeless quality that Lex Luthor could be president in the 1960s or could be president in the 2000s. It doesn't really matter in the timeline of things. And yeah, obviously it's kind of shady because Lex Luthor is kind of a shady person, but I think it works for the storyline of the DC universe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really enjoyed this story. I, I think it's a, a nice ending of the story. It hit on those ideals that superheroes have to deal with every day. What do we do when we can't prevent crimes and what extent can we go to, to try and fix things? The, the, these are people who have powers beyond the realms of what mortal men have. You've got a person who can run so fast that he can break through time if he uses this special machine that uh, allows him to do that. And it's one of those dilemmas that we come up with uh, on another show that I know you loved, on Doctor Who. What, what What's the ramifications of tampering with time? And obviously the heroes, especially the Flash and Batman, say this is something that we can't do. If we just went back all the time and fixed these things, we're not really allowing, you know, is it our purvey to allow ourselves to do this? And so I like that this conversation is brought up and it's brought up really well in the book. Because you never know, like, what's going to happen if you fix every single thing. I mean, if you go back in time and save, like, Joe Schmo, he could go on to become a hero, or he could be the next villain. You really don't know these things. You have to let 
certain things in history play itself out. And I think I think choosing Batman as the person to tell Kyle about this was was a stroke of brilliance because who in the world wouldn't go back in time to save his parents from being killed if not Batman? I mean that's the defining mm-hmm. that's the defining thing in his character. And if he went and did that, all the things that he had fought for for all this time would have been for naught. You know, would have would he? be satisfied with his life would he have his family back yes but what are the ramifications of him doing that i mean if if he wouldn't be batman he wouldn't be a hero he wouldn't even be around i mean he could possibly just rewrite everything that he's ever done i mean i kind of would see him kind of being like in the long run if Almost like, oh, what's his name? Gosh, um, God, you got me in the morning when I'm still drinking my coffee. <laughs> um, uh, Green Goblin's name. Oh, Harry Osborn. Thank you. Um, he could be, he might end up being kind of like a Harry Osborn like character, just like a really superpower rich kid who has all the power in the world, um, doing the same kind of inventors, like inventions and making inventions sort of things and end up being a villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that, that's the thing. If Batman had not had the tragic loss of his parents, would he have become Batman and saved countless other people and solved countless other crimes that would have occurred? Probably not. So it deals with the sort of ramifications of what a superhero can and should do, and I I like that in the story. And I'm guessing that Kyle is not a a Batman-like hero um just judging by 154 when he had the chance to end uh the punk and he didn't mm-hmm. um he ended up punching the wall um so i'm guessing like that he is not a batman kind of hero he is like a typically just a good guy yes he's okay he, he's along the line like i say and that's good writing because i i don't read green lantern so i got that from two issues so good mm-hmm. job writing <laughs> um in general kyle rayner is sort of an analog at times to the the Marvel Universe's Spider-Man. He's a character who uh, gained this power um, without really working for it. It was essentially he he got the Green Lantern ring. I think I explained to you uh, as we started up at the end of uh, the storyline where Hal Jordan went crazy. The last Guardian gave him the ring. So this was just something that he wasn't prepared to have, and he basically grew into the role. It wasn't like Superman, who was born with all these powers and developed them over time. It's not like Batman, who spent his life training his body to be this uh, hero. He was just some random guy who got lucky and got essentially the most powerful weapon in the universe. And the fact that he's developed as such a uh, such a credible hero is a tribute to the writing and the character because you know uh, like uh, like spider-man he could have just uh, well like anyone he could have just you know done whatever he wanted to and been a jerk or even become a villain but no he was a good person decided to use his ring for for good essentially gotcha going through the book you know i kind of go through there like like i said page one i was glad to see in the book that Lex Luthor was making a appearance in this book as president saying that we don't, uh, we're not going to stand for hate crimes and I'm going to try and advance more legislation to uh, stop these kind of things. And it, it gives a, a lot of times in the books we don't have that sort of, 
the the sort of feel that they're all connected, and I like the fact that they have this little all they have to have is this little bit here saying that Lex Luthor is president that gives the the Green Lantern book a better connection to the DC universe. Mm-hmm. And I like the little nods. Um, we we talked very briefly for like two seconds about Matthew Shepard and whether or not this was in the same era. Um, I. I do like kind of like the little nods of some of those events that were going on during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, just like having the candlelight vigil and everything like that. Um, uh, as a just a question, does it go on in the future? Like, does Terry come back and see this? This is where I'm going to have to fail you on this. This is an era of Green Lantern that I love, but unfortunately, when it was coming out, I didn't collect it. So I'm kind of reading this myself for the first time as well so so i i'm hoping terry comes back because i'd hate to see after this his character just get dropped Uh, i'd like to see what's coming on but unfortunately i know in the new 52 and i think actually in the even in pre-new 52 the stuff leading up after infinite crisis and all that i don't think terry was all that mentioned i hope they at least give him some sort of resolution and we find out more about him because he he was a really interesting character in the green lantern mythos of this time and i'd like to not see him be dropped by the wayside Mm -hmm. moving on on pages two and three i i it's hard to say i like the characterization of the father but i like the arc that his father is taking he's obviously upset with the idea of his son's homosexuality and he's lashing out at jenny and kyle and all these people that he was friends with but in the end you can see that this is all this is all him kind of trying to deal with the anger of his son getting brutalized and i like that it's it's him dealing with the anger of all of this it's not him wholly being homophobic but you can see that there's probably little stints of it and i I like that winnick at least tries to make him somewhat sympathetic and it obviously makes his mother very sympathetic to the to the plight here i mean he he obviously loves his son um he just didn't know this about his son and i i i think this is a very realistic reaction to someone who, A, probably got a phone call saying your son's been brutally beaten up, you need to come to the hospital, and then getting to the hospital and finding out he was brutally beaten up because his son was actually gay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, that's a, those, those are two really big double whammies if you weren't expecting it. I mean, I'm sure probably before this he had no clue, um, just well, going by the two issues. Well, actually, actually, um, about, a year ago in actual publishing time, Terry came out to his parents and there was some problems. His father was obviously very upset about it, but eventually he was at least that they haven't really mentioned it, but I think his father was at least accepting of it, if not really condoning it. And it's just now the fact that he's been brutalized because of his homosexuality, that he's lashing out simply because he's not comfortable with his son being homosexual. So so he, he knew about it prior to this, but this was just one of those things that now, because of his son's homosexuality and him getting just beaten up like this, he's able to have an avenue to vent his frustrations or his feelings about about his lifestyle. Yes. So, and, and, and I, I, I like it's it's very subtle. If you look on page four, that first panel there, as uh, as Marx, you know, in his you know being held by his wife, 
<clears throat> and Ginny's going to take uh, David, Terry's boyfriend, in to see him. And David hasn't been in all this time to see him because his father has been saying, no, I'm not going to let his boyfriend come in. I, I like that his mother is accepting of it, and she sort of gives this just slight wave of her hand. Yeah, allowed. the little wave. Mm-hmm. That's, that's like really it's totally great. totally okay. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, – and it shows that – the mother understands she's she's accepting this and it's it's a really good dynamic for the parents obviously you kind of would think yes the dad's going to be oh my son's not gay i'm not going to accept that but the mom's like completely understanding of it so it's it's really good characterization for these people that you really haven't had in the comic any relationship with except sort of in text commentary so this is actually the first time we've kind of seen the parents in the comic so it's it, it it's good characterization in the book. What's going on in Kyle's and in, in Kyle next to that panel? He has like a shoulder bulging out of his like arm. Yeah, uh, what's that shading? It's like it's it's like a football where his shoulder should be. It's Dale Eaglesham, the artist for this, is a really great artist when dealing with female characters. Right now. He's working on the Sinestro book over at DC, and he does a really good job with this. This is some of his earlier work, and a lot of his male figures really don't look that good. In fact, if you look at the, if you look at David and his facial, that, that panel right beneath him and Kyle, the only real difference between the two characters is like some stubble on them. He, oh yeah, like he's definitely rocking the five o'clock shadow right now. But, uh, you know, that's been my one gripe with the artwork in this. Uh, Eagle Sham doesn't seem to get the male characters too too well. And yes, Kyle does look way too beefy. I've always thought Kyle of a sort of lean, slim, sort of like if you watch the Flash show, uh, Grant Gustin from the Flash. He's supposed to be kind of like that, a sort of lean, thin, uh, fit type person. And Dale Eagle Sham. It at most times draws him a bit too beefy for me. I mean, even Spectre has like a fifteen pack on him. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, well, I and I like understand his cape that. has muscles. Come on, <laughs> I, I, and I know that it's stylized a design for superheroes for them to be uh, absurdly fit, but I think. It, his drawing of Kyle is a bit off and also his drawing of Jenny as well. Unfortunately, she's got a waist that you could wrap your hand around. I'm moving on to the next page on page five, that first panel there. If you look, John putting his hand around her her back, her waist is way too small. She has no internal organs and that's always bugs me. All all her internal organs look like they've been squeezed either up into her arms or down into her legs. I'm pretty certain, you know, that's why she has such a, ample chest it's because her intestines are up there (laughs) Uh, you know and i've complained about this before i like comics where they depict females correctly she's attractive but no one has a waist like this and it it bugs me yeah yeah i mean this is like almost borderline hawkeye initiative Mm -hmm. like fodder right here and i i might be just a little spoiled because you know recently i've been reading um uh, 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 the Unbeatable Squirrel Girl by Erica, Erica Henderson, I think her name is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is like, very first issue, Squirrel Girl's going to college, so she crabs, like, she stuffs her entire tail into her pants, and so she has a very round butt and curves, and she's just like, 
I look kind of pudgy. Nah, I look sexy. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. yay, positive body image for women. And yes. So I see something like this and I'm like, mm, at least She-Hulk is very proportional yes. right now. Like she doesn't, well, I mean, and, but, but this is also like, there's a very difference between comics in the, what is this, like early 2001, 2002? Yes. And comics now. I mean, there's definitely a, been a huge shift, especially for women in comics. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, I mean, even like Catwoman and um, Batgirl. I mean, Batgirl has a brand new outfit, and it's, you know, oh, what's the word? God, you need to not catch me in the it's, morning. It's, it's, very, it's a very realistic outfit. It's realistic, not. It's not. It's not stylized. It, it's very functional. It looks like functional it can actually Functional is the word work. I was looking for. Like her cape is removable by snap. So if she gets caught, she just goes snap. It just keeps going. I mean, so this is like just really shows the clear difference between. The two eras. Well, and it's still kind and, of it's. Still... And even the guys, like I'm looking at John, and then I turn around, and I look like currently the like the Grayson comic man. Dick Grayson looks hella good because he's proportional, he's beautiful, and he's drawn. And and like the keyword here is proportional. John is just looking at the further down the panel where he's just drinking coffee. He's all shoulders and and chest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he also has a really tiny waist and. Unless you're Chris Evans, men don't have that like kind of natural like Dorito waist shape. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's it's kind of an it's it's kind of a an archive or an aspect of the '90s comics and the sort of style of that that still is kind of hanging on. I'm not saying Eagle Shams aping '90s comics, but it's probably it's not that far removed from it and the very stylized you know big shoulders big breast big gun tiny waist type thing is probably still permeating through the comics at least the art style right now i mean even the like terry's dad is buff mhm yeah uh, he has a hell of a jawline you could like open a beer with that jaw yeah it's it's just a standard they don't seem to want to draw normal people in the books everyone has to be these idealized characters and you know it's okay every once in a while to have just a pudgy guy or a skinny guy or whatever but uh, mm. there you go. moving on to the next page sorry <laughs> no that's cool i'm glad we're getting to talk about this um i'm so glad now i don't know if this is still in continuity at the time but i love the concept of the cosmic treadmill this is the Silver Age trope that they used in Flash comics back in the 1960s, where Barry Allen, who was the Flash at the time, could get on this thing called the Cosmic Treadmill, and he would just run incredibly fast, and that would allow him to run through time, so he could go to whatever time that he wanted to go to and go have adventures. Thank you for explaining that to me, because all I could see is just, like, it was just silliness when I read that in my head, and I just... Now, Thank you for actually explaining that. I don't to know. Me. <laughs> I don't know if you're watching the Flash TV show right now. I haven't had a chance to start it. I I work. I just started my fourth job, Sean. So oh dear lord. <laughs> I I barely have time to sleep, let alone watch extra TV that I'm not assigned to write about. Well, I'm. Uh, I understand that, but if, if you do get a chance to catch the Flash show, there is a treadmill on that that they test Barry's speed on the show. And I'm pretty certain that eventually that is going to become the cosmic treadmill, which allow will allow Barry to travel through time. It's comic books. Just go with that. But I like it's CW comic books. Yes, that's true. So it's it's very I guess it's very stylized or very uh, stylized like this. And everyone looks good as well in that. So there you go. Um, 
I like the fact that Kyle's approaching these uh, superheroes to try and figure something out. And I'm glad that they are, that they're turning him down. They're saying, no, you can't do these types of things. You can't change history. That's, that's not what we're doing. And I specifically like that Batman is the one who does this. And I'm pretty sure they've all, all the superheroes that had at one point had been like, I'm going to make an irrational thing and I want you to do it. And there's always been another superhero to go, no, man, I've been there before. It doesn't work. I mean, I'm pretty sure probably in the future, Kyle's going to have a moment with another superhero going, dude, it's no, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) While they're exploding over something irrational, which I mean, I don't even think this is really irrational. I mean, you know, he is hurting. Kyle's emotionally hurting. And it's it's not just because this is his friend. It was just also his friend that was stuck in a senseless crime that that shouldn't have even happened. That is still happening. And mm-hmm. this was a really crazy time for like it was a weird kind of transition time for I believe if I remember correctly for like gay rights and everything. This was a kind of a transition time. The nineties was incredibly rough. If you're familiar with the with the musical Rent, um, yes, it, that's like kind of the happy version of what was going on in, in, in gay rights time. But really, what was going like really going down was there, it there like it was just homophobia everywhere. Like there was like fears about you know the gays are coming and HIV is coming and you can't even touch a gay person or you're gonna die and and you're gonna get AIDS and stuff. And even then, just trying to treat AIDS and HIV was incredibly awful you would they would have these things called like the cocktails and that'd be your medicine and be just a bunch of pills thrown together and you just take them and you didn't even know if it was going to help or not it was all test medicine and everything and then going into the early 2000s a lot of that kind of started calming down but a lot of it like we started making more advancements in how having to treat aids and hiv so Oh, they were coming out of a time of fear and starting to move into a little bit more of a time of tolerance in this kind of early era. But a lot of it, internet, you know, internet and stuff helped too. And, um, you know, because there was more awareness and that we were moving more into a time of internet. But probably uh, if this was like early 2001, 2002, we were still in kind of like that post-90s fear of homophobia, of the unknown, and just now starting to move into a time where people were more starting to get to be more understanding, and we're still not there yet, of course, because yeah, it's 2015 and we're not there yet. Yeah, there's um, still hatred of homosexuals, unfortunately. But this was, like, the beginning of, like, a new era, so I'm actually kind of happy that they did this comic in that time period to show, I mean, even then, if I, you know, 154 had that splash page at the end about 9-11. I mean, this comic, to me, is more than just the gay hate crimes comic. This is also post 9-11 fear. You have like anti-Islam going on right now. Like, you know, this was a really scary time period. So I think this is more than just a hate crime against uh, gay people. This was a hate crime against anything that was like really not typical American idealism. Mm -hmm. And so I really like this comic coming out during this time. Um, I think this was probably not just for the gay community, this was also for, like, the Islamic community as well. I mean, they were going, they still are going through, I mean, look at, I mean, with everything with ISIS, I mean, like, there is still so much anti-Islam fear. I mean, I was talking with one of my Muslim friends a couple weeks ago, and they don't even like going to school because they're going to get bullied. I mean, so this is, 
this is more than just the gay comic. This is like the everything minority comic to me. Yeah, and that's that's a good catch there. That this is this is not only a hate crime against homosexuality, but it's a hate crime against all anything things different. that is minority, that is anything different. And it's it's I think you're I think you nailed it there where you said because it came out in that era of 9/11, the post 9/11 era. This is where we're all hypersensitive about all these things and being able to tackle it in this story and specifically tackling the idea of homosexuality, but allowing people to also think that this also might deal with uh, fear of uh, fear of radical Islam and stuff like that is, is a nice catch. So uh, yeah, I agree with that. Thank um, you. I like the way – now, as much as we've complained about the artwork on some of the characters, I think Eagle Sham does a really good job of drawing Batman. I like that Batman here on page 9 is just a bit taller than Kyle and how imposing he looks without even doing anything. Uh, Batman – a while back in the Green Lantern comics, Kyle had a sort of heart-to-heart -heart with Superman, and Superman sort of steered him straight on some things he was doing. And that worked at that point in time. I think it's good that they have Batman here because this is an entirely different issue that Kyle is dealing with. And I think Batman is the right person here to deal with Kyle, telling him, you're not supposed to be a vigilante. You're supposed to be one of the good guys. I'm the one who's supposed to go in there, rough people up, break limbs, and and take names. So I, I, I think I think the portrayal by Jen Winnick of Batman throughout this issue is really great. And I, I also like the ending... You know, when Kyle walks away and Wally and uh, because this is the Wally West flash, not the Barry Allen flash, mm -hmm. um, uh, tells Batman, you know, I thought he was going to hit you. And he says, yeah, uh, trying and connecting are two different things. I just <laughs> I just love the sort of smug Batman every once in a while. And <laughs> not even a smile. Mm -hmm. After that, we get Kyle essentially going into space to play a little bit of Green Lantern asteroids. And uh he meets up with the Spectre. Now, you know that the Spectre was Hal Jordan at this time. Yes, I, I, I'm familiar with Spectre from um, Kingdom Come. I'm also familiar with him from uh, Green Arrow's uh, Quiffer storyline by Kevin Smith. Mm -hmm. um, I'm from, so I, and I know that him and like Ollie were best friends. So I, I am familiar with like who uh, Spectre is. Yeah, and I'm, I, I'm glad that I'm glad that they bring the Spectre in to talk to Kyle as well because. Not only with him being this omnipotent, uh, all-knowing person, he can see... He also just recently went bad crab crazy and was like trying to do his own vigilante justice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, uh, yep. prior to this, this was sort of the impetus for Kyle getting the ring because this was Hal Jordan and uh, because of his uh, because of a bunch of events going on he eventually became the Spectre. And so I, he's like Daddy Spectre right now. Well, and that's what I was going to say about this. He's this like is, his Green Lantern daddy. This like is, you know, this is like Green Lantern's son. Yes, this is this is what's great about this era of comics. Even though Kyle is the only Green Lantern, he has an extended family. He's got Hal Jordan. Uh, as the Spectre, who can come to him with these big, powerful, sort of omnipotent, godlike issues and have him deal with that. He's got John Stewart and Guy Gardner, who were previous Green Lanterns, and Alan Scott, who were previous Green Lanterns, to be a sort of family and a kind of uh, j just to be there for emotional support and just uh, just to be there to be a family. And I like that aspect about this era of the comic. You 
right now in comics, it all seems to be about the event or the storyline. And very often you don't get these sort of character moments. You don't get these downtime moments where you're just having them talk and have conversations with people. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the fact that Green Lantern has a family dynamic really makes this book it elevates this book from your average, you know, oh, we're going into this next event and we're going to have to be fighting against the Red Lantern Corps. We're going to be having to fight against the armies of Apocalypse and all this. So it, I, I like the downtime element of this. Um, Question before I make my next point, because I don't want to upset, uh, make, a, make a point and then have it be corrected. Um, How was mentioning that uh, that Kyle found his father? Um, was he close with his father at all? Or like, was like what happened with his father in this one? Okay. Well, in Kyle's history, um, and we found this out in issue 150, essentially he really had no relationship with his father because as revealed in issue 150, his father was kind of an agent for the government and was doing sort of covert op things and the government came after him. So in order for, him to protect his wife and his son, uh, his, his wife and Kyle, he decided to stage a beating of his wife so his wife would have a reason to tell his father to get out. And then he went on the lamb and went undercover, and Kyle never knew about his father. When Kyle had these godlike powers, uh, the, the power of Ion, essentially, he used these powers to track down his father and uh, reconnect with him. So that's what's going on with Kyle and his father. Kyle really didn't have any relationship with his father up until just recently. All right. So that then once again goes um, with what you were saying about like this kind of extended family. Um, a lot of times our family isn't the people that we're blood related to. A lot of times our family is the people we find um, over time. And they're the people who are there for us. And I was noticing in this um, you have kind of like these three examples of fathers. You have Terry's father. You have the absence of Kyle's father in this traumatic experience that Kyle is going through with Terry. Um, and then you have Hal Jordan here, who is kind of like his Green Lantern mentor father. So I kind of like having these like three different examples of different kind of fathers all in one issue. And how is the person that's here for Kyle? And then even when Terry's father might be reeling from this experience with his son, he's still there, even though he's just angry, upset, and he's still there. And I don't know. No, I I agree. I like the father dynamic. Like I said, this is the great thing about this era of comics, that you were able to write stories that didn't deal with just the massive event. You could have these little things where it was character-driven and it was people talking about issues. So this is one of the, the great things about the book and having Hal Jordan as essentially the hand of God's vengeance. Hal is in tune with more grandiose things than Kyle can even imagine. So it's nice that he's not only giving fatherly advice, but he's giving advice from the aspect that he knows a lot more of what's going on in the entirety of the universe than anyone could possibly know. So I, I like that aspect of it as well. And even uh, like even Kyle says, you know, I, I could have just like done that one last thing. And how goes on to say, like, you've done so many things, even not having this godlike power. I mean, like you, just because you don't have this god power anymore, like you did a lot of things with it, but you've also done a lot of things without it. And I like them starting to go into that um, morality, that that talking about like morality and everything, because life is 
when you're a superhero, I mean, Kyle can't control everybody's lives, even if he has this godlike thing. I mean, life is about choices, you know. Uh, Terry and his boyfriend, like, chose to go out on that night and stuff, and they chose to kiss on the streets. I mean, like, that, like, even though it shouldn't have happened and it was a senseless crime, it was all about choices. Like, those, cho- those thugs chose to beat them up and they could have just let them go, and now they're in jail. I mean, a lot of, like, the, that's a group of, like, five people right there that Kyle had no control over, and they all dictated their own paths and their own lives in that one moment. And that's what life is about. I mean, we could all go back and think, I wish I did this one thing differently, but then it wouldn't be life. You know, we wouldn't have, this is a little bit off topic, but I'm actually reading, um, uh, they're, they're writing a sequel comic to the movie galaxy quest. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, of course I have. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite movie all time. Well, they're doing a sequel comic to it. It's a, it's a four issue run and it's like the after effects of the Omega 13. And what actually ended up happening is when they released the crew released the Omega 13, it ended up all the way across the galaxy stopping this changing point in a civil war. And so now these aliens have come back and they're going after the crew of this like TV show and everything. And so they, it's like the effects that you never know how changing like one simple thing is going to affect everybody. And, and you, sometimes you just got to live life. Like bad things happen and you have to, embrace the bad things of life to really enjoy the good things of life i mean yeah exactly i think i think and i think that's a point that they are they're trying to make that you can't have you can't have the the good moments if you're not at least having some bad moments to balance it out and i i agree it's the it's the concept of you know how can you change everything how can you control everything where does it stop and I think they they tackle this in they've tackled this really well not only in this story but in previous stories of what does it what does it mean to be a superhero and how far do you take that especially when you're a superhero with immense power like this so mm. I, I I love the story of this um, we and move... the faith that Hal has in Kyle he I mean he flat out says I know you will always do what is best. Like that's just pure faith that he has in Kyle. Mm-hmm. And Kyle, Kyle's proven it. Uh, like I said in that issue 150, Kyle had a sort of crisis of faith. He had this godlike power. He told Hal as the Spectre, he was willing to rewrite history so Coast City didn't explode. He didn't go crazy and murder the Green Lantern Corps. So everything was back as normal, and Hal's life was back as normal. But he didn't because. He knew that he couldn't change those things, that those things were faded, and that changing them wouldn't really fix anything. So uh, it it shows that these two characters have a trust in each other and a, a, a very good rapport. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on to the book, uh, we obviously get the positive resolution that Terry's at least going to be okay. And and that's once again enjoying those happy things opposed with the bad things. Mm-hmm. And if you look in the panel, I think it's page. Oh, where's my page number? Page number. Anyway, it's the one where they go and see it. Mm-hmm. Terry, uh, Terry's parents and his boyfriend are all in the same room. Yes. When I'm... opposed, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say that's that that's really great that they've at least come to. They've come to an agreement that they know that they all care for this person and 
whatever prejudices and whatever feelings they have about each other are completely dropped because they know everyone cares for this character. They care for Terry. So that's the, I think that scene, I think it's on page 16 where, where you see them all sitting around his bed is great. Mm-hmm. Um, I will admit that the idea that Terry, that the attack on him damaged him so much that he doesn't know what happened to him is kind of, it's not really a cheat because that kind of thing does happen. You get mm-hmm. so much brain trauma that you lose portions of your memory, but it does definitely set up a, a really sort of tragic thing that he's not going to know why all of this happened. He's just going to have to live with the scars of this assault. So it's kind of melodramatic, but I think it works in the story. What do you think about that? I mean, I, I, I think it works in the story. It happens all the time. I mean, people have uh, blackouts when things happen to them. I mean, uh, my, my brother was in a car accident and doesn't remember the actual accident. Like he remembers the before and he remembers the after, but he doesn't actually remember that time period hmm. of that little space of time. I mean, he's fine now, by the way. He's totally okay. That's good. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. No, no, this was several years ago when he's totally okay. But I mean, like that, that sort of thing happens. Um, what I, what I found interesting in this time period though was he asked Kyle what happened because I think he, and, and he was just looking at Kyle and waiting at him, waiting at him, waiting for him to explain it because I think in a way, um, this was the moment that he was hoping that Kyle would be a hero and be the one to take on the the leader role and tell him what happened when nobody else would. Because everybody else was trying to protect Terry's emotions and what happened. So he turned to the one person he was probably sort of hoping would actually step into the leader hero role and take on that hard position to tell him what happened. And Kyle doesn't. Um, he, he falls back on that and he chooses not to be in that kind of hero leader position to let Terry know what happened. Yeah. And uh, you can kind of see from the next page where it's revealed that Terry knew that Kyle was Green Lantern. That's probably why that he expected Kyle to tell him because Mm -hmm. he, he had this sort of not really hero worship, but knowledge that he was this hero and he expected that Kyle would be straight with him. And let him know what went on where everyone else was, like you said, trying to avoid the situation and trying to avoid the idea of what happened or trying to avoid the the attack that happened on him. So, but even then, that makes just Kyle even more human. I mean, to me. Well, and I think I think it's also that Kyle realizes that this is something that the even though Terry is an important part of Kyle's life and that Terry looks up to Kyle, this is something that needs to be approached by the the actual people who love him, his family and his boyfriend. So <clears throat> I, I understand Kyle not doing it at the time, but it, it doesn't upset me that he didn't do it. So yeah. Much. No, no, it doesn't upset me in any way, shape or form either. Um, I, to me, if anything, it just humanizes him or either a, he couldn't do it or B he felt that it was the parents job to do it. And so I, both are, both are very human choices. Mm-hmm. So um, question, quick question. Um, do we find out how Terry found out about him being Green Lantern, or was this the first time it was revealed that he knew? This was the first time it was revealed. You gotcha. kind of had hints that he might know. There were some really obvious things that happened prior in the book. There was uh, 
Kyle lived in an apartment in Greenwich Village, and there were times where ridiculous things would happen in his apartment. Like, one time there was an attack in Kyle's apartment where the roof was blown off his apartment, and later that issue, Terry came into the apartment and saw the roof blown off his apartment and was like, wow, what happened here? And luckily, John Stewart was there to say, uh, 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 the ceiling collapsed. Yeah, that's what happened. It wasn't an attack by this uh, supervillain on a Green Lantern. No, 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 it wasn't that. So, <laughs> so uh, you kind of, and I like the fact that, that that he kind of figured it out on his own, that Terry kind of figured out that Kyle was Green Lantern on his own, because I don't mind the trope of super superheroes having their own secret identities, but when people who are close to them can't figure it out, it kind of stretches uh, stretches credulity. Um, I it's think like the whole like Clark Kent just putting on glasses and he's suddenly not Superman, and you can't tell. Yeah, I, it, it's it's a trope. I always had that problem with Sailor Moon actually, because how many girls have like that long of ass hair with meatballs <laughs> on their head, but she puts on tiara, and you suddenly don't realize it's the same girl with five foot long hair and balls on her head. <laughs> like that, Sailor Moon was the one that, that always bugged me about it. Yeah, well, I didn't know. Yeah, well, there's there's always that trope, and I, I think I think it's nice that there are characters who do figure it out. Like in Superman, there was this character of Pete Ross who figured out that uh, Superboy was actually Clark Kent, and he kept that a secret for all this time. Now, I don't know if uh, after Crisis on Infinite Earths that was the same thing, but uh, the, I like and in the Green Lantern movie. There was a point where Carol Ferris, and, you know, encountered Hal Jordan Green Lantern, and just sitting there for just like a half a minute, she was like, "Green Lantern, wait, you're Hal Jordan. Uh, the silly mask doesn't cover up your face. I know exactly who you are. I've seen you naked." So there you go. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering where Kyle leaving Earth where this is going to take the character, but I really don't mind because we get that awesome splash page at the end of the book with John Stewart, just looking awesome. I'm, I'm sorry. That final splash page with John, he is has, a fantastic splash page. That, now. Yes. John looks a bit beefy, but I think, I think this is the first time in a long time they've gotten John Stewart's face, right? I got to say, though, the shading on his face, though, he has a wicked mustache shadow. <laughs> it does kind of look like he's got almost a Fu Manchu going on there. But, oh, yeah. Uh, but he looks <laughs> awesome on this splash page. He, just he as... really does. I think that's I, that's the best he's looked all issue. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it's nice to have... We've had uh, on occasion Kyle giving this extra Green Lantern ring to various characters. He's given it to to Jenny, the the green girl in the book, and now he's giving it to John. And it's it's going to be nice to tell stories with John because John is one of those really interesting characters that seems kind of in the comics kind of malleable. People tend to do what they want with him, and I want to see some some interesting stories in this run with John Stewart. And the, the, he'll be taking he'll he'll be Green Lantern pretty much from now on out. But I'm glad that he's back in the role of Green Lantern. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's about it for the book. Do you have anything else you want to talk about this? I'm I'm pretty okay. Okay. As someone just like jumping in, like I okay, as someone who's just jumping into this, and I only read 154 and 155. The story stand, stood alone very well on its own. Um, just going from the like the two issue arc that I read. 
Um, I, I thought it was written well. Well, I mean, it was a nice arc. It was a little. I, I definitely think the first one was the much harder of the two two to read, but this was the one that was tackling the emotional side of the story, while the first one was mostly the action side of the story. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a good read for someone jumping cold into Green Lantern for two issues. It stood very well on its own, other than the few times I was just like, I don't know where any of these people are. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know who they are. <laughs> I, and I'm glad that we occasionally get these little two part storylines that can stand on their own and thankfully this doesn't have uh, a lot of times what i complain about in modern comics is the waiting for the trade mentality where you'll get a story that's only part one of six parts essentially and i like these little two-part things that you can give to a person who isn't specifically knowledgeable about the character and they can gain enough from it without having to know the whole backstory or history of it the fact that you didn't know what happened with Kyle and what happened with Hal and what happened with John and Jenny and all these characters didn't really diminish the story all that much. The story stood on its own and it was an entertaining story on its own. So I got to say the one thing I regret from not talking 154 with you was on the very first page. Good Lord. The boyfriend has some like really crazy beefy shoulders. Yeah. He looks like a linebacker and his head looks three times too small to fit that proportion of shoulders. Again, Dale Eaglesham does not do the best with the male characters. Uh, when he's drawing female Though characters... Terry looks really cute, but he kind of looks like a girl. So well, I think that... And, and he, that, he looks very well proportioned. And that was, the, that was the thing about Terry. Terry's supposed to be about age 16. And he, he does... I think Eaglesham did a good job of drawing him significantly younger than the rest of the characters. And a lot of times, drawing teenagers or child uh, children as characters they just shrink down you know adult characters and equal sham at least drew terry to look like a child rather than a shrunk down adult so i'll give him that mm-hmm. um hope it's always great to get to talk to you i'm sorry that i didn't invite you on for an issue <laughs> that you probably would have had you know a, a better knowledge of so but thank you for coming on the show especially since you were pretty much a marvel person and green lantern is just one of those things that's sort of outside your wheelhouse uh, to come on and talk about this these two uh, this issue and a little bit about the issue prior to it oh no i had a really good time i feel like if you ever want me to try and my best to tackle green lantern again i'd be more than happy to this was fun and, and i and i do like you know, I grew up with DC, but I grew up mostly with Batman, and I grew up with the TV shows. I didn't really grow up with DC Comics. I didn't even really get into Marvel Comics until college when pretty much Iron Man came out on, mm-hmm. in, in movie theaters. So, I mean, um, I like reading. Um, I, I, I do want to I have been trying to expand more into DC, especially since now I work in a comic book store. So I'm just like, oh, crap. <laughs> I need to learn more about DC. So like this was a really fun um, journey to like venture into because um, I, I am looking to open up more into the world of DC and I, I really enjoyed this. I just always have a hatred for Superman, so <laughs> no problem. I, I just don't like Superman. So if you want me to talk about anything about Superman, I, I will be more than happy to. Well, I'll, I'll make sure that we don't hook you up with uh, either Michael Bradley or Michael Bailey. Then we'll just. Oh, I know. I already told Michael Bailey one time. He was like. What? 
And then he just went really silent, and I was like, you know, Michael, are you still there? You know. <laughs> he was like, yeah, but you hate Superman. I don't know if we can actually talk anymore. I was like, I'm sorry, Michael. You know, uh, this is, I'm, I'm going to quote Luke Giaconetti here. He, he, he quotes a line from this movie, Phantom Paradise, a song is a song, you either like it or you don't. Whatever you like, you like, and if, if it's different from someone else, let them like it. Yeah! Uh, I, I'm, 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 I'll go off on a little bit of a rant here. I'm sick of everyone, especially on Facebook and everything, having to polarize whatever people like or dislike. If you like something, like it. If you don't like it, don't like it. But don't berate someone else for liking something you don't like. Exactly. Just, like I, I feel the exact same way. Like I don't care that Michael Bailey or other people love Superman. Like one of my really good friends, Bill Meeks, loves Superman. You know Bill. He was yeah. on a yeah. He loves Superman, and I don't care. I they can like it all for me. I, it doesn't bother me any. It's not hurting me at all. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's the thing that's irritated me so much about. Uh, about the recent comic industry and about the recent things. Yes, there are changes going on in comics. Yes, comics may not be your thing right now. You may have a certain era of comics that you like. Like that, but we don't have to be so divisive amongst people. Uh, you know, just just let people enjoy stuff. If you don't like it, don't like it. Allow others to like it and go on with it. Yeah, I mean, like I know for me recently, like I'm a little bit... I'm a little, I was upset at first that they're making Tony, uh, the one that creates Ultron for Age of Ultron, and then they're having the Ant-Man movie afterwards when it was originally in the comics, Hank Pym, who created Ultron. Exactly. And so, like, I, but it's one of those things that, I, you, you know, it's like comparing books to movies. They're not going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just got to let people enjoy it. But a lot of people has been very anti-Tony Stark recently online, and I'm just like, uh, I'd rather just go and enjoy the movie and not really think about it. Yeah, I've I've heard specifically in the book, and again, I hearken back to Luke Cecchinetti. He he's not happy with the uh, take that they're doing the Superior Iron Man for Tony Stark. But, <laughs> That's uh, been fun, but awful. Okay, well then I gotta I will say take though, like that. reading Superior Iron Man is the first time I've ever liked Daredevil, but I think it's because. Tony Stark is so much of an asshole. <laughs> really? See, and that's disappointing, you know, but maybe, maybe again, this is just a story arc that they're going to take, much like what they did with Superior Spider-Man, giving Spider-Man being taken over by Doc Ock. And well, you know, mm-hmm. I, I need to collect those trades because I have I need to finish up that run. Though I gotta say, like, part of it is just the Axis storyline in general was just god awful. Mm. Um, the tie-in stories were far more interesting than the actual main storyline of Axis. Um, when, yeah, I mean, so I mean, it was just a really, really poor storyline that read in, that led into a bunch of really poor stories. Hmm. That the only good one in it was Loki agent of uh, Loki agent of Asgard because Loki became worthy of Thor's hammer, so he was wielding the ham- hammer for a while, which was pretty darn badass. And then you had uh, Carnage as a good guy for a while, and he would be like ripping people to shreds, and then smile at a lady and like, I did it, I'm a hero. <laughs> so it was really fun. But I mean, the main story of Axis was awful. See, I'm gonna have to take your word for that because I'm. Uh, Marvel stuff currently. In fact, a lot of DC stuff currently. I'm kind of out of the wheelhouse of that. So. I would say read Original Sin. Um, that set up the current Marvel stories right now because that's where like we got Girl Thor and that's where we got like um, 
uh, 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 like, you know, Spider-Gwen and all that stuff. It all came from Original Sin. Hmm, I'll have to check that out. Has that been traded yet? It has. Um, I think right now it's only in a hardback, um... And and the there's the trade in it's like seventy dollars for the hardcover and mm. then you have the compendium uh or the or you have the companion piece which was all the tie-ins so it was like the Deadpool tie-ins and the Fantastic Four tie-ins and stuff like that do not get that one just get the separate stories though I will say the only Deadpool story I've ever liked came out of Original Sin too because he found out he had a daughter hmm. and he's a really amazing dad <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> wow, a Rob Liefeld creation that actually does something good. Wow. Yeah, he is. He's actually. It was. It was actually really touching because you know Deadpool's all mangled and stuff like that. And when he saw his daughter, she was beautiful and she was normal and she just looks like a normal little girl. And he was like, "That that can't be my daughter. She's too pretty." And it was a really sweet moment. Like that was about the only time I've actually really liked Deadpool. Wow. I may have to go check that out. Yeah, Original Sin was pretty good. Okay. Hope again. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, unfortunately, like I said, we're not going to be covering the second book. But uh, Hope, it's been just a delight to get to talk. It's always a delight to get to talk to you, Hope. We're gonna have oh. to do. We're gonna have to do more Hoosier freaks coming up. I've got to. I've got to figure out the next time for that. But before we uh, finish this up, do you want to tell people where they can find you on the internet? What you're doing out there? Yes, um, you can find me at geekygirlexperience.com, which is my website. And then, as I as I mentioned earlier, my fourth job started recently, and I'm working for a new network called What the Fangirl. It is a podcast, a blog, and it's just pretty much the, a look at media from a girl's point of view. Um, and I started that with my friends Bree and Alex from Other Side of the Mirror podcast. So, yeah. Well, that sounds like, and are you going to be podcasting with them on that? Um, as of right now, it's mostly them. I do know that I'm working press for 221BCon in April. And so I, I am going to be like uh, reporting on 221BCon and promoting and everything like that. So um, at the moment, uh, it's mostly just Brie and Alex. But they are really incredibly knowledgeable women about just media in general. Um, so I would definitely give them a listen. And then, of course, you can find me on Twitter at Hope Molinax. Mm -hmm. Well, Hope, thank you again for coming on the show. I really mm -hmm. appreciate you you know, stepping outside of your wheelhouse and taking a look at Green Lantern. This was just really fun. This was super fun, you know, outside of, like, the, the actual source material. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the source material is kind of hard to take, but the conversation was great. It's always wonderful to talk to you, Sean. Okay. Well, we will be back after these uh, podcast promo uh, commercial break thingies. And uh, after that, I will be covering Green Lantern Evil's Might number three. Right. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Gotcha, or maybe... Dragon Flame! How about... Tatsuo! Or... In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientists and engineers spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember... Our Star Blazers! Or this? The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era... There are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. 
or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Gene, grappler ships dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew... Home was a pen. Humanity... If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes under 2TrueFreaks Presents Anime Freaks. What is it that makes a superhero? Superpowers like super strength? Or bullets bouncing off your chest? Perhaps the ability to fly? Or can a regular person with the super heart and the brains to match become on the outside what he has been on the inside all along? Hi, this is Matthew Apps, and I'm the host of a monthly internet radio program covering the adventures of steel. The only human member of the Superman family of characters to wear the air shield. It's called The Armoured Hero Steel, a John Henry Irons podcast. On the show, as well as looking at his adventures, I also take a look at the ads and letters in Steel's book, briefly look at what's happening in the rest of the Super family, and even take a closer look at people that are important to the character of Steel, from the people that worked on his book to supporting characters, including heroes, villains, and even family members. Check it out every month at www.thefanofsteel.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com And we are back. So let's go ahead and take a look at our second book this time out. This is going to be Green Lantern, Evil's Might, number three. It had a cover date of 2002 with a release date of October 23rd, 2002, and a cover price of $5.95 US. The title was Who Becomes a Hero? And the writers were Howard Chaikin and David Tishman with penciler Marshall Rogers. The anchor was John Ceballero. Letter was Bob Lappin. Colorist was Chris Chuckery, and the editor was Andy Helfer. Ringing up a flying horse-drawn carriage, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner speeds off wounded officer Hal Jordan to the hospital after rescuing him and his girlfriend Carol Ferris from an explosion in the newly dug New York City subway. As they fly off, the man who set off the explosion, Alan Scott, finds the trinket he's been wearing around his neck pulses with emerald energy. Changing his clothes to some dapper green duds and affixing the trinket to a walking stick, Alan heads off as the Bowery Green Lantern. At St. Vincent Hospital, Carol Ferris checks on the condition of the injured Hal Jordan. Hal apologizes for his collusion with Tweed and his father, telling Carol that he still loves her. Carol says that she loves him, but as a friend. Ooh, burn. Elsewhere, Cal is visiting Jimmy Mulrooney, who was beaten up for ratting on Cal's location, much to his parents' chagrin. Telling the Mulrooneys that he's going to stand up to Alan and the Bowery Greens, Cal confronts them recovering Jimmy as his father heads out to confront Tammany for its treatment of their workers. 
While tensions grow between the workers and Tweed's gang, Alan Scott rummages through Kyle's apartment, eventually finding the lantern and charging the bobble on his walking stick. At the same time, Carol Ferris sneaks Kyle into her bedroom for a little super happy fun time, while outside the Tweed estate, the Irish workers start a riot against the corrupt police. After some presumed off-screen nookie, Kyle heads back to his apartment just in time to find a fully charged Alan Scott bursting out of it, lantern in hand. Cal attempts to retrieve the power battery, but Alan gets away before he can grab it back. But since he charged the ring at 7 o'clock, Kyle still has 8 hours to catch Alan and get the lantern back. Speaking of Alan, he's back at the brothel cavorting with the Lady of the Evening when a badly scarred Inspector Jordan strides in and tells him the deal with the Greens is finished, as is the hit on Kyle Rayner. Alan accepts the deal and the story ends. Nah, he rings up a blade on his walking staff and skewers the inspector with it, ending his life. Across town, in the Chinese restaurant, Cal proposes to Carol, while far away the Irish rioters turn their attention to Tweed and his men. At the same time, Alan is using the emerald magic to rob a bank, while Kyle and Carol are getting married at the Justice of the Peace. This is all moving pretty quickly. But the happy moment is broken up by the sounds of violence coming from the mob on the street. Stopping the ceremony, Kyle changes into Green Lantern and heads out to try and quell the masses. Unfortunately, Alan arrives and Fighty McLeitenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, breaks out between the two Emerald Enforcers. The fight rages amongst the Lanterns and the Irish mob, with Alan eventually gaining the upper hand and shiving Kyle. But Kyle isn't finished as he traps Alan in a ring construct pyramid and shrinks him down, embedding him in his ring. Knowing that his time is short, Cal takes the trinket from the walking staff, affixes it to its ring, finds the lantern, and charges up. His life slipping away, Kyle flies across the city, collecting the pieces and assembling the Statue of Liberty, letting it stand as a beacon of hope for the downtrodden of New York City. Telling the masses to stop tearing things down and to start building them up, the Green Lantern falls to earth amid the dispersing mob, prompting a waiting Carol Ferris to run to his side. Breathing his last, Cal gives Carol the ring professing his love to her as he slowly slips away. Some time has passed, and Carol pays her respects at the grave of Kyle Rayner. Since his death, she has opened a home for wayward boys in her father's name and has taken a young Jimmy Mulroney as her butler. Meanwhile, Boss Tweed is spending the rest of his days in his own private cell in prison, while Jimmy keeps the work of Rayner Shine going as artful graffiti on the sides of buildings. And as our story concludes, we see Carol Ferris still the ardent crusader, during the day petitioning for union rights and women's suffrage, while at night warring against crime as the Green Lantern. Okay, again, not a bad story, but one that probably could have had more resonance with me if I had a greater knowledge of the history of the Tweed Tammany era. In fact, there are large portions of the book that I skipped over simply because it really didn't deal with Green Lantern. It dealt more with the Tweed characters and their interactions with the Irish mob and the writing and all that. The art is still good, with Rogers having a very detailed look to a lot of the backgrounds. 
And the idea of the Green Lantern as more of a social crusader is kind of a trope of the Golden Age Superman, but it works in this era. And Green Lantern assembling the Statue of Liberty to quell the riots is kind of... corny, I guess? But overall, it's a good story that probably was more enjoyable for someone who has a working knowledge of New York City politics than I do. Let's go ahead and take a look at the book and see if I can find some things to talk about that interest me more than, well, obviously more than the New York City riots and the Tammany Tweed regime. Starting with the cover, while Kyle's Green Lantern uniform is more like the Golden Age Green Lantern with the sort of red jacket and the green tights and the red boots with the straps on the side and the purple cape, Alan's uniform is more like a Victorian-era Guy Gardner with a double-breasted suit that's or a double-breasted jacket that's sleeveless with the dark sleeves and the very white gloves and the sort of thigh-high, almost knee-high pirate-type boots. It's a little different from the, what would you say, the sort of moon boots that Guy Gardner used to wear. But when I saw this cover, I thought initially that the person who was fighting the Alan Scott-looking Green Lantern was Guy Gardner. And I thought, ooh, it's going to be Alan Scott versus Guy Gardner in this book, and it turned out Guy Gardner was nowhere to be seen. Because, obviously, Howard Chaikin hates Guy Gardner, as apparent by Guy Gardner collateral damage. I'm still not going to get over that. Page 6. I guess James Mulrooney, one of the characters here, was one of the people in the book who was organizing the workers against Tweed. Again, I'm not certain if he's one of the people who actually organized the Irish riots against uh, Tweed and Tammany, but maybe it is, and this is just Chaikin Tishman putting him in, putting the character in there as a historical figure in this fictional book. No idea, unfortunately. And then moving on to page 8, there was more stuff about the dealings of Tweed and this character named Van Dyke, who I guess is the chief of police or the commissioner or something like that of New York City. Again, it really didn't interest me, and it was kind of one of the failings of the book. This felt like very much a a vanity piece for Chaikin and Tishman, that they wanted to write a tale of New York City during this time because they were big history buffs. And unfortunately, because I don't have any real interest in that, it just kind of falls flat for me whenever these characters are on the page. Page 11, the timeline of this book is all kind of wonky. Here on page 11, we see Carol sneaking Kyle over to her house to make the Victorian beast with two backs, and it really doesn't make any sense in the scheme of the book other than Carol and Kyle are in love rather than Carol and Al, which I guess is appropriate to what was going on recently in the Green Lantern books, but that's neither here nor there. And then on page 15, panel 4, I've got a little bit of a nitpick. There's a problem with the word balloons. The images of Kyle throwing a boxing glove con construct and hitting Alan, knocking the lantern from his hand. But the word balloon, supposedly coming from Kyle, says, It's time you learn to talk less and fight more. The lantern's mine, Kyle. So it looks like it's supposed to be voiced by Alan Scott, but it's coming from the direction of Kyle. So... I don't know whether this would be a a letter you know problem or whether this is a writing problem, but it just didn't it didn't work for me in the book. It didn't make any sense who was saying that. Plus, later on this page, panel six, the uh, girl that 
Kyle's talking to the little Irish girl who's living in the tenements with him, has serious blow-up doll face. It's uh, really uncomfortable. Even worse than what we saw with, like, Jenny Lynn Hayden in the Green Lantern books. Page 23, here's where the time compression really doesn't work for me. Kyle said earlier in the book that he only had about eight hours of charge left on the ring. So here he proposes to Carol, then prepares to get married in that short amount of time. It just kind of stretches credulity here. I don't think even if they are trying to do a really quickie marriage that they could actually get it done in this short amount of time. But they've got it in the story somehow, so there you go. Page 25, another thing I omitted from the synopsis. Here in his mansion, uh, standing on the balcony outside looking at the mob, Ed Ferris shoots and kills James Mulroney, who was the leader of the Irish Revolt, which will probably come back in the story to bite him in the ass. Uh, page 32, one of the really goofy things is Tweed and, I guess, Van Dyke or Croker, who I guess is one of his cronies, I have no idea, is trying to hide out from the mob. And he yells at the mob, saying, Tweed ran that away. Go chase him. And it works. They don't realize that this person yelling them, it, it's its yelling at them, is actually the person that they're after. It's very wily Coyote and should not work at all, but whatever. Page 34, this also kind of doesn't work for me as well. As Alan and Kyle are fighting, Alan takes the walking stick and creates the creates like a shiv on the end of it with the lantern energy and skewers Kyle with it. Now, as you know, as Green Lantern fans, the ring was supposed to be able to protect the wearer from mortal injury if it was charged. And you can only assume that Kyle's ring was charged. And even if it wasn't, he should have been protected from mortal injury anyway. So this shouldn't have killed him, but for convenience sake in the book, I guess it does. Then on page 38, this is, again, more weirdness. Kyle traps Alan in a ring construct pyramid and then compresses it into the ring. Did he just genie Alan Scott, or did he actually compress him? Because if you look at these panels here, it looks like he's actually enclosing him down and squishing him. Not that Alan is shrinking in size. It looks like it looks like he's putting it in a contortionist box. It, 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 if he isn't shrinking him, he's pretty brutally killing him by sh by shrinking the box around him and just crushing him like that. So that's kind of creepy. Plus, on this uh, panel at the bottom, couple of panels, we see some of the rioters have gotten up into the Ferris building and have taken a hold of Ed Ferris, and they push him off the balcony right in front of his daughter, who's watching on. Yes, granted, Carol didn't have that great a relationship with her father, but still. Patricide in front of the daughter. Well, not patricide. Murder in front of the daughter. Yeah, that's that's going to affect you. Page 39, Kyle goes all around New York City and picks up the pieces of the uh, Statue of Liberty and essentially builds it in one fell swoop, which I guess kind of works. 
it's it's a nice way to try and get people to give people a symbol of hope and a symbol of the of the strength and unity of the immigrants who helped make America. So there's that. It is kind of goofy that he lights it with the emerald light, but whatever. It's comics. We'll take it. I take that for what it is. Plus, it also kind of gives you a timeline to when this story takes place because the Statue of Liberty was completed in October of 1886. So if you consider this book sort of following uh, the history of New York City, this is set sometime around the late 1800s, possibly 1886. So there you go. Page 44. This was another scene that I really didn't get. I guess the cop in this scene who's in, who's working with this police inspector to try and suss out this murder is actually Alan's right-hand man who's now reformed, or maybe not, as the inspector who's doing the crime seems kind of blasé about it and might possibly be corrupt. So what this means, if this person was actually a historical figure that they put in the book, I don't know again. But again, like I said, the historical aspect of this book just doesn't resonate with me. But then finally on page 48, I will admit that Carol does look good in the Green Lantern get-up. I enjoyed the way she looks, and overall, this wasn't a bad Elseworlds story. I've definitely read worse. I wouldn't put it up there with, oh, I don't know, A Thousand and One Emerald Nights was pretty good. I like that. Um, I probably enjoyed it more than the Green Lantern Elseworlds annual that was the one where it was set in Nazi Germany, but that's probably just because Nazi Germany is very uncomfortable. But overall, a good story and a couple of good stories altogether. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you'll be coming back next time, because next time out, we've got a tale with another Green Lantern. Not Hal Jordan, not Guy Gardner, not Kyle Rayner. You can guess who it is. He's one bad mother. And I'll shut my mouth with that and leave you all with this farewell. And I hope that you'll come back next time for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Until then, have a safe week, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Inkle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scan the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. 
Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenland. The opening music for today's show was Sarah McLaughlin and her song Angel, which she performed live. However, if you'd like to buy this song, you could get it from Amazon.com and buy the MP3 of it or buy the album Surfacing that the song is off of. Of course, if you want to go to Amazon to buy this song, I would suggest that first you go to TwoTrueFreaks.com. If you go to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com banner in the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll be transported to Amazon, where you could buy Sarah McLaughlin, Katie Lang, any number of the Lilith Fair artists that you could possibly want to listen to, and get all weepy about because it's associated with the ASPCA puppy videos. And of course, if you go through the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to buy something from Amazon, a small amount of your purchase price gets shunted back to the TwoTrueFreaks website. You won't see anything taken out of your pocket extra, but the amount that Amazon gives to us really helps the website out. So whenever you're thinking about buying music, movies, DVDs, games, anything that you're thinking of online, make sure you go through Amazon.com and make sure you use the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com. <laughs> That's going in the outtakes. <laughs> okay. How the hell was I supposed to know? I mean, this this would have been like, you know, I, of all the things I could have pulled out and, and had, you know, uh, had, you know, uh, this is just... I I love I love history and I was um, so close to being a history major. So uh, I might as well you can fill me in on this. In the book, there's a lot of talk of uh, sort of Irish race riots that went on around this time. Was that a, was that occurring at the end of the Boss Tweed era? It was in. The, have you ever seen that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio? The Gangs of New York is that? Yeah, sort of... like it was uh, a lot of the race area wars that uh, fights that were going on in the riots, as because the, I mean this was the no Irish need apply time. Um, uh, the Irish potato famine had happened, and so people had mass flocked away from Ireland and like just pretty much invaded New York. Um, I like it was the biggest growth of Irish immigrants in that time period. Okay. And it was because they were, but, but what ended up happening is they just over flooded the area. Um, there was way too many, way too fast. It was like, God, hundreds of thousands of people just showed up in New York. Um, and so there wasn't enough food. There wasn't enough jobs. There wasn't enough. Um, and the thing is, is like Irish people were like, well, this is our new home. Give us rights. And the Americans that were already here were like, what the fuck, man? You're taking away all of our jobs. And so what ended up happening was, um, a lot of the politicians were like, okay, we can figure out what to do with this. So that's when they were making like mass factories that like children were getting mangled in because they just had, they were like, oh, an Irish kid or man or woman died. Well, we have 12 more. Let's just plug them right in there. It was awful conditions. They would stick them in like shanty houses and you'd have like 12 people living in one room. And so like the Irish people were like, you know, we came in here for an opportunity. And those people like Boss Tweed was like, you're not really people, man. You're just like animals. 
And so that's where a lot of the race riots came from because they were trying to get their own rights in another country. And the Americans that were already there were just like, well, we don't really see you as people. <laughs>